Okay, welcome. Um, you're visiting with us again for the Public Problems 101 course. Uh, we're having a special interview with Nathan Favero tonight. Um, he wasn't part of the original uh, course schedule, but we got to talking about a few different things and giving that one of the themes of this course is supposed to be evidence. Um, Nathan and I actually have done a little bit of work on evaluating quality evidence together. And um, we had a lot of fun when we did the podcast together. So I asked him if he would be interested in trying out some new live, Facebook Live tools with us. So he's going to join us here in a moment. You can also see that we're trying out some different tools with Facebook Live. You'll notice a little um, name plate under me um, and the Public Problems podcast uh, logo up in the top corner over here. There we go. So some nice um, fun new features tonight. Um, but with, uh, with that in mind, um, I'm going to bring in Nathan. So let's see if I can do this right. Hello. We are as two squares, Nathan. Welcome, buddy. Oh, thank you. I'm glad to be here. All right. I'm actually going to blow us up to big screens like that so people can see more of us. Um, okay. So what I'd like to talk about tonight is evidence. When I titled this kind of talk, um, I titled it Thinking on Evidence. And the idea, Nathan, was that I thought it might be useful for the students and for the people who've been following along. We've been talking each week about different uh, public problems. So the first one was medical cannabis uh, with David Bradford, who you know. And David does a really good job of laying out the empirical evidence, both scientifically and from his own work, making the case for the use of medical cannabis. And then last week we talked with, I spoke with Greg Galls and we talked about international relations and how to think about international relations frameworks and evidence for those um, to make good decisions about uh, international affairs policy. Okay. And excuse me. One thing I think that's useful to start in this discussion is when Greg and I were talking, we were talking more about incentives and historical context with a little bit on statistical empirical data, whereas the work you and I've done and the work with David Bradford, when he was talking about the medical uh, cannabis legislation uh, research was all talking specifically about statistical evidence. So I thought we might start with you talking a little bit about how you think about evidence. And by evidence, I mean evidence for trying to sort through um, how we might work on some public problem, how you think about that, maybe the different types of evidence as a social science researcher that you think about, and then maybe walk us towards the importance, particularly of statistical empirical data for public policy issues. Sure. Yeah. Um, that's a great question. So I, I think there's a lot of different types of evidence, um, as you sort of hinted at, and um, quantitative empirical studies are just one type of evidence. Um, it's the type that I've focused on the most in sort of my work, um, and it's getting a lot of attention right now in media and popular outlets um, when people sort of talk about evidence-based policy or evidence-based interventions, I think they're usually have in mind quantitative studies. Um, when, when, when you say quantitative, all you really mean by that is like the uh, data that's captured in the form of numbers, for example, like some numerical observation that represents 
something that we're trying to measure, right? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Some sort of study with numbers in it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, um, and and I think that's that's good in a lot of ways. I think it's also um, a, a little bit dangerous because sometimes I think we we test studies with numbers more than studies without numbers, yeah. uh, and 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 that's not always good because there can be really terrible studies that are done with numbers and really good studies that are done without numbers. Um, so I, I try to think about evidence in a little bit broader terms. Um, and, and one of the ways that this has really um, become apparent to me is that we're forced to make all kinds of decisions where we don't have a clear quantitative number study that we can turn to to make those decisions, right? So I, I'm a professor and when I make decisions about how to teach and I'm trying to decide um, how I should formulate the assignment that I'm going to give my students, right? Either I have them, everyone working on the same data set, or I let them all choose their own data set, right? It's, it's not like somebody's done a study for that exact situation that I could yeah. look up. Um, and so I have, to, I have to try to reason through it, um, and, and I can talk to colleagues um, and see what their experiences have been, and that's essentially a way to sort of qualitatively assess this, right? But to me, that's evidence, going to colleagues, figuring out what they've done, um, and then trying to, to do a little bit of reading on some empirical research, um, some quantitative research on that, that tries to think about broader principles of teaching, right? So they're not going to answer that specific question for me in a stats, an intro stats class for MPA and MPP students. Should I be giving, having them all work from one data set or, or everyone picks their own? That question isn't going to be answered, but I might find some general um, advice about pedagogy and, you know, the importance of active learning where students are actively engaged in producing knowledge somehow in the classroom rather than just sitting and listening to lectures every time. That's the kind of thing that I can take from some of these, um, this body of, of research, which is partially theoretical, but also based on quantitative number studies where they've maybe even done randomized experiments and that kind of thing. And that can help me form some broader principles or theories that I can draw on when I'm making decisions. But to me, all of that is evidence. Uh, it's, it's the conversations with colleagues in the hallways. It's looking up some studies about general principles. Um, and then I don't, I don't know if evidence is the right word, but just sort of trying to qualitatively think through how do I think my students will re react? Going back to when I was in the student's position and sitting in their shoes, how would I have reacted to something like that? That's definitely reasoning. I don't know if we call it evidence or, or just theoretical reasoning, but I think that's a part, an important part of, of making good decisions as well. Yeah, so I, um, I think I heard a few different things there that would be useful to touch on. So some of what I heard you saying was that just kind of blindly following numbers or just looking how one thing is related to another and say a correlation, which is something maybe we can talk about in a little bit, um, seeing how two things happen together um, by itself isn't really good enough to make decisions. It has to be grounded in some type of understanding about the world. Um, and I want to I get to that, but I do think it's an important thing for people to, to know going into this evidence that the evidence is to support or kind of deny some type of claim that we have for good reason. Um, and then the evidence is giving us um, some more information about whether or not what seems logical, what seems like a good argument based on things we know about some situation is testable, right? And so one, uh, let's see, one example might be, um, 
what does, and this is a relatively controversial one, but what does a raise in a minimum wage, what type of impact does that have on wages in that area and employment in that area? Right. And so that's a question we might want to test empirically. A lot of people have done that. But before we did that, we might we would want to know how do people normally behave in labor markets? Um, in general, do people want more wages? Yes. In general, is there competition for labor? Well, that depends on where you are in the market. There's all kinds of other factors that would give us a good understanding as to what the impact of some policy might be in this case that I'm using, raising minimum wages on a whole couple different uh, outcomes, both the local economy and wages in that region, right? And so it's important to not just throw a bunch of numbers at the wall. And if because um, two things are related, that means there's a story there. We actually have to understand why there might be a story. And so I think it's useful going into this to separate those two. The second thing that you mentioned that I just wanted to touch on a little bit more before we leave it for maybe um, thinking about some more of this empirical evidence is I I think in our fields and in a lot of social science uh, policy research, the bias, um, what people really kind of get called up on or excited about is empirical research. Um, And by empirical, I meaning like a lot of numbers, a lot of data sets or a large data set from which you can do correlational or regression analysis, right? And there's reasons why those are favored. One, we just have access to a lot more data than we did in the past. So there hasn't been that many years where we had, we could answer questions in this way easily. So it's still sort of a new tool. um, And it allows us to find trends in data that we couldn't before from just observational uh, case studies. It allows us to actually see in really with lots and lots of numbers how things might go together from a statistical standpoint, grounded in rules and probability. And so those things are super useful for thinking about policy issues. However, um, observational evidence is also quite important, right? And it's often important for the theoretical development piece as well, for example. So these nut lines aren't as clear and neat as, you know, we might present them tonight. But, you know, if you want to understand poverty, for example, one way of doing that is getting a lot of data together and seeing what variables are related to poverty um, and seeing if they're correlated or if they if they go together. Um, and lots of people do that. But the first thing you probably want to do is understand something about the nature of, pro- of poverty, not just how it's related to other things, but see it, touch it, you know, observe it, see how people in those conditions live and hear their stories about why they live that way. And so I don't want anyone listening to think that those aren't real important pieces of evidence and pieces that inform my um my own understandings of poverty and political philosophy and suffering, but the there are some benefits to doing it more um, with lots of repeated cases, with lots of uh, information that varies. Um, but another one also is case studies, which is what was used primarily, along with analytical reasoning, I think, for how to determine the between competing theories in the past. So you would have a couple of different cases that varied on 
you know, maybe just one dimension or one or two dimensions of interest and that you could use them kind of like a, as a comparison. Hey, if you do this with these types of factors, this is what we get. You know, if you live in a high income, highly concentrated area, you get these types of uh, outcomes, right? If you live in a low concentrated, low income area, it's related to these types of things from, you know, delivering some service or something like that, right? And so the case study can be really useful in highlighting differences too, but the uh, the empirical stuff is what we're going to focus on with the idea that in some ways it can it can be more generalizable, which I think we'll, we'll want to talk about. And it removes some elements of the bias of the researcher, but as we might talk about uh, as well at some point throughout tonight, it, it's not it's not completely flawless in uh, researchers being able to bias empirical research either, which is something that uh, that I think we we should talk about. Yeah, yeah, and, and can I just jump in real quick? Yeah, I guess ahead. one another way to um, think about I think the the poverty example is a, is a great example. Um, when I want to try to understand poverty, I'm going to look at evidence from all kinds of different sources and all kinds of different pieces of evidence to try to understand it. So one of those is going to be the big empirical studies that a lot of economists and, and policy people, folks are doing. Um, but I'm also going to want to, to me, it's important to also look at some of the work that sociologists are doing, where they might be doing in-depth ethnographies, going and living with the community for maybe two years at a time and writing about that. And they're not necessarily using a lot of numbers, but they are doing very deliberate and systematic and careful um, look at what uh, what these people's lives are like, right? And it's a lot more than just, you know, a short 500 word newspaper article that tries to tell us something about poverty, right? And so to me, that's a valuable piece of the evidence. And also valuable is research that um, psychologists are doing, where they might be trying to understand how people make decisions under stressful situations or something like that, right? That might help inform how I understand poverty or um, the ways that sort of stress or um, limited resources, or you know, or 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 past behavior, right? Growing up in different types of situations might affect behavior and and discipline and um, the the extent to which uh, people have a reservoir to be able to um, do things like keep saying you know no uh, to resting or to doing something instead of keeping working or keep looking for a job or those kinds of things, right? So there's the there's the psychological aspect of poverty. There's the um, sort of understanding what these communities are like. Um, and then there's a, a lot um, of that description can also come in the form of numbers. So I think all of those pieces are important to put together if we want to be able to understand a policy area well. You need lots of different types of evidence. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm going to jump in just for a note to the audience. I'm going to see if this works. Just try to show it on the screen. Yep. So. Um, Fail. Well, if I could uh, spell, I have a typo here in the uh, in the screen. So let, let's try that one more time. Which is feel free to ask cues throughout. I thought I, free all questions sounded pretty good too. Yeah. Feel free to ask. There we go. Hey, look, it showed up that time. Makes sense. I can spell. This is why in my own class, I sort of joke with the students. I never write on the board, and I blame it on my handwriting but I think everyone can see tonight that it's actually, I can't spell. So I can see your comments through. Um, 
coming through uh, tonight, so feel free to ask, and when we have a chance, we'll we'll get to them. All right, now let's go back to it. So Nathan, with all the disclaimers about different types of evidence, and tonight that we're going to focus on empirical evidence, let's talk about empirical evidence. And I don't want to jump right into the issues of empirical evidence without kind of giving people a little bit of a background or a little bit of an understanding about what we mean by um, empirical evidence. So it's rooted in statistics. Um, and what I think might be useful for the listeners when they're thinking about uh, how to evaluate this evidence is to start with some really basic statistic, descriptive statistics terms, and maybe tell me a little bit about some and average and mean and some of the basic things that people might hear and how they might hear about them uh, expressed popularly, and then shift to um, away from uh, away from descriptive statistics to to uh, analytical statistics, um, correlation, regression, and just kind of walk people through. And I'll interrupt you um, as as maybe we need, but walk through what those terms are and what we're talking about. Sure. Um, so I guess uh, probably the. The simplest statistic that gets used the most, which you mentioned, is the average, um, which is also sometimes called the mean. The mean and the average are the same thing, um, and that's that's basically trying to tell us, you know, what what the typical observation is like in a data set, right? So if the average age is nine, um, you know, we know we're we're looking at a data set that has lots of, of children who are relatively young, and and that's that's language I think we're all fairly used to using. Um, even though sometimes when we say average, we may maybe typical instead of a specific numerical um, value. Um, and then another measure that gets used sometimes instead of the average is the median. Um, and, and the big way that the median is different than the average is that um, if you have someone who has a really unusual value, um, we would call that an outlier. So if you have, um, let's say we're looking at income. And we want to know what is the typical income in this community. A lot of times in that case, uh, people would prefer to have the median income reported rather than the average income reported. Because if there's one person in the neighborhood who has, you know, a $5 million income or something like that, it, that's going to affect the average and, and bring it up a bit more um, than it will affect the median. The median means that 50% of people are, are lower and 50% of the people are higher, which um, is, is a measure that a lot of times people want to use. Easy kind of first thing is that if um, if the data um, or if the thing you're looking at is like age, where um, it's not there's not a lot of uh, people who are going to be 10,000 years old. There's kind of a reasonable distribution between uh, or amount of people from people who were born to people who are a hundred. No one is living much past 100, for example, where and in that the average makes sense. But in some other types of things, in particular, maybe some policy things that have unlimited tails, unlimited high ends, unlimited ages, um, take income as the example you use, right? Some people make um, no money. Some people make $10,000 a year. Some people make 30. Some people make 300,000 and some people make 300 million, right? And as a yearly, uh, as an income in a single year, and so when it's when it's the differences are like that, median can be much more useful than the one that's typically reported, like average, um, which is also known as mean, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 
So what other descriptive things do we care about when thinking about data? Kind of what the middle, what the center of the data is, whether it's the average um, or the middle, the middle amount, which is the median. Um, is there anything else that's particularly useful to know from how numbers are described when thinking about statistics? Yeah, so the other really basic um, statistics concepts or terms that get used a lot, I would say, are um, the variance or the standard deviation. Um, and the, the variance and the standard deviation are two tightly related statistics. Um, one is just the square root of the other. Um, so they, they're essentially measuring the same thing. And they're trying to measure what we call spread instead of the middle of the distribution. So again, if we go back to the example of ages, right? Let's say that we, we find out that the average age in a school is nine years old. Um, the variance would tell us whether or not how, how far the typical person is sort of from that. So are, are, is it that almost everyone is nine? If every student in the school is nine years old, then we're going to have a variance and a standard deviation of zero. But if the school has um, children of lots of different ages, right, some of them are five years old, some of them are, you know, 15, um, then we're going to see a larger variance or a larger standard deviation. So the standard deviation and variance are a little bit harder to um, precisely define what the numbers mean, what is a variance of five, um, but but they're mostly useful when you're trying to look at things in relative ways, right? So if I have one school with a variance of three and another school with a variance of seven, then I know that the school with the variance of seven has a lot more variety, right? The, if, if we're talking about, again, age of, of students, we know that there, there's a lot more variance. There's a lot um, more range in terms of how old the kids at that school are, whereas the school with smaller variance, pretty much everyone's pretty close to being the same age. Um, I have to say, Nathan, um, it's probably the only time in history when someone was talking about variance and the number of viewers of something actually went up. Not only did numbers not... It, it will probably be the last time. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so variance, I think these two are useful for people to know if they're ever reading academic studies. Um, you'll see mean and variance. Mean is average. Um, when people are dis uh, displaying statistics for you, know that sometimes the mean can be misleading if there's a large different amounts of, uh, of a variable or something that you're looking at. And this idea of variance is just how close is everything else to the middle, right? How much difference are, how far are things on average from the average, Right. And so to your point earlier, um, you know, if you're um, you can think of a high school having a lower variance of an age. Right. than if you had K through 12 in the same building. Right. Exactly. OK. All right. So um, we got mean and variance. So then how do people use building from mean and variance to actually say, oh, if you implement this policy, this will happen. How do we go from there without getting too technical, but just so people can kind of tie those together and I'll work with you on it if you'd like. How do we get from there to, hey, if, you know, you see these things come on on the news um, some from different federal agencies about reports that if they do this, this other thing will happen. It will kill jobs or it will hurt the trade uh, deficit. So how do we go from 
these basic descriptives to what we'll call inferential statistics or analytical yeah. statistics. Yeah. So I think the, the easiest way to think about this is to start with the example of just a randomized experiment. Um, and so I think most of us are probably familiar with that in the context of medicine, right? We have the, the double blind study, right? Where um, they randomly give some patients the medicine and they randomly give other patients a sugar pill. And so in that case, it's, it's if we have some measure of, of, let's say how many days the patient lives after you give them the medicine, right? Um, then you can randomly give either the sugar pills or the real medicine to two different groups of people. And then you essentially have two data sets at that point, right? A data set of people who have gotten the medicine and a data set of people who have gotten the sugar pill. And then you can just compare the mean of those two groups or the median if you want. Um, and, and if you find that the group that gets the medicine lives longer than the group who doesn't get the medicine, then that gives you a pretty good indication that the, that the medicine is, is doing what you want it to do. So that would be um, one simple example of how um, we can sort of use that, really the first statistic that any of us learn um, to be able to talk about how interventions cause things, right? How, uh, in this case, the intervention is giving someone medicine. But we can do the same thing in the policy sphere. Um, we can try interventions, and this is something that, that's being done more where uh, different policies are being experimented with. So one example would be um, in the UK, I believe it is, um, they were trying to get people to pay their fines for parking tickets or something like that. I'm not sure exactly what it was. And so they wanted to see, they wanted to know if we sent people a text message reminding them that they owe the government, you know, five $25, whatever it was, you know, some small amount of money. If we send citizens a text message to remind them, is it going to make it so that they're more likely to pay the fine? Well, the, the easiest way for them to do this, or at least the, the most persuasive way for them to figure out whether or not the text message would make a difference was to do a randomized experiment. So they get a list of, of, of people and citizens and phone numbers, and then they use a random jump number generator to pick half the people on the list to send a text message to and have the people on the list to not send a text message to. And what they found was that when they sent the text messages, um, those people were more likely to, to pay the fine or at least to, to pay a portion of it. And so that's the sort of um, way that this, the, probably the simplest way that this sort of evidence can be used in, in the, the policy space. So the basic idea then builds from random control experiments from medicine or hard sciences where um, you only change one thing about something, you give them a treatment, you have all these, you have you know 10 people and you give five of them the treatment uh, to help kill their cancer and five don't get it. And if the five people uh, who got the treatment, their cancer goes away and the five people who don't take it, uh, continue having cancer. There's some average difference in the amount of cancer in that person. And so we would use the average there when we've got everything else kind of randomized um, to, to see if the medicine was useful for cancer. And yeah. to your point, you can do that in the policy world by assigning treatments or assigning some type of care to some group of people and not giving it to other people. 
right? And so you could give some group of unemployed people um, train workforce training on how to get reemployed, and some group not. And if everything else was random across those groups, about the same on average, then if the ones who got the training got jobs or got them more quickly or got better jobs than the group who didn't receive the training, you would know that by comparing the averages of the people who didn't get the treatment to the average of the group that did get the treatment, right? And I think in those cases, uh, when you can truly have different random categories, this is a pretty straightforward thing, right? We find a million people or as many as we can reasonably have and you give, you know, 500,000 of them a treatment and not the other um, and that you would be able to tell what the, what the effect was. And one way in which this is done in the policy world before we move to situations where you just can't assign a treatment that way um, one interesting example I think that researchers do is use variations across states. And so one way that this can be used for policy re research in the U.S. is there are 50 states. They don't do everything the same. And so you can see how when some, some group of states do something and compare it to other groups, if you can make everything else roughly equal across the states, which we'll talk about how to do that, you can see how effective things were because it's a natural, you know, in, in some conditions, it could be kind of a natural random experience, experiment. Yeah. And uh, just one, one other example is uh, looking at sort of traditional schools versus charter schools. Um, so this is something that's, that's done very often. You can look within a state or within a city, a, a certain school system, and make a simple comparison of traditional schools versus charter schools. Um, you can take something like uh, their performance, the average score on a standardized exam. And then you can see is the average higher for the public schools or for the charter schools? Um, or if, if you don't trust standardized exams, maybe look at dropout rates or some other measure, right? But whatever, once you get that quantitative measure, you say, what is, what is the average for the charters versus the traditional schools? Now, the, the trouble comes in uh, trying to sort out, well, are they really serving the same student population, right? What if uh, a lot of charter schools, it turns out, are alternative schools. So they're, they're primarily um, serving students who have had some sort of disciplinary issues or something like that. And so maybe their test scores are lower, not because they're worse schools, but because they're serving a more challenging population that has had more behavioral issues in the past. Um, so translating that into trying to make a causal claim that the charter schools are causing people to perform worse is where all of this gets dicey. Um, but that's that's where we can start to use um, some of these statistics and more complex methods come up to try to address some of these complications because it is often hard to attach causality. Yeah, so before we shift to, so you were mentioning um, sort of these other factors that might also be related to school performance that aren't equal, that aren't random or across public schools, or excuse me, across charter schools and public schools, for example. And so we're gonna talk about in a minute different ways to, uh, the statistics are used to, con to control for that or to take that into account. Before we do that, uh, we do have a couple of uh, questions here so I'm also going to try displaying one on the screen for the first time. So this first one is from Chung Chil Kim. 
who has been a regular student um, in the class. And King Charles says, do you, do you think that do you think that kind of posture, like accepting diverse kinds of evidence would be differ by each academic areas? Like economists relatively won't accept evidence based on observation and quality of research or something uh, like that. And so I think uh, what Kim Chow is getting at is are different um, disciplines more open to different types of data than others? And uh, I'll, I'll let Nathan tackle that as well, but I'll, I would just start with saying uh, um, I think that's true, um, although I will say that most academic disciplines are pretty funny about their methods and using the methods that are accepted uh, in that discipline. The uh, uh, economists are sort of famous for uh, sticking with econometrics, which I think is what Kyung Chow was mentioning at, but also uh, behavioral uh, economists use a lot more of experiments and uh, different types of methods. So even within the field of economics, you have a variety of different ways of analyzing different types of statistical tools. Uh, but it's I think it's definitely true, which is what Nathan and I were um, suggesting earlier, that in the in the public affairs and uh, public policy sciences, there's uh, definitely a bias towards empirical data. And in other fields, there's definitely a, a bias away from empirical data. Um, and so take the uh, Moral philosophy, as an example, um, historically is making kind of analytical arguments and the, that is the evidence and the quality of those and how they test to um, someone's perceptions about things kind of match. Um, and you might think of uh, some of the immersive type methods that you were mentioning earlier, Nathan, where because of the nature of the question, people are involved in a community or immersed in a community. So I think a lot of it also has to do with the type of question that's being asked. Would you like to jump in on that, Nathan? Yeah, I'll just say a, a couple things real quick. I, it's, it's a little bit hard for me to speak towards this comprehensively because I don't know a lot of disciplines very well. Um, but in general, I would say people tend to trust most the evidence that's coming from their own discipline or at least tend to read it and cite it the most. Um, but I, th I think there are some exceptions. Um, so I got my PhD in a political science department and I think that political scientists are much more likely to look to evidence that economists are producing than economists are to look at political scientists' work. So I think there's a little more trust in one direction versus the other. Um, and that's, that's just one example. The other thing I'll say, though, is that um, going back to a little bit of what you hinted at with the trust for quantitative evidence in certain areas but not others, um, there's some, some people have assembled statistics of how often different disciplines are getting quoted in the media. And there's an overwhelming um, preference, it, it seems, for economists. Um, they're getting quoted all the time in discussions about policy, whereas sociologists, historians, political scientists are much like less likely to be quoted. And so um, I think economists are um, dominating the, the public debate to a large extent. Um, and one could argue that they're more advanced methodologically um, and that some of their, they, they bring more rigor to the topic. That's the, the way one might defend it. I don't know that I buy that argument, but one could make the argument that they bring more rigor, which is why they've earned a greater seat at the table. They certainly bring a lot of statistical rigor to these large data sets, which are often the data sets that are used to address the types of questions that we care about with policy issues, which is exactly what we're talking about tonight. Um, 
I have uh, I have another question here from Marcus Hayes. I'm going to throw up real quick it's about poverty. Um, and I just wanted to mention it. Uh, what role do you think place can play in terms of poverty? Are considering that where poverty is concentrated the highest, there are factors taking place that are particular to that place. Um, I don't know the poverty research super well. Um, uh, I think it, the thing that you could say about poverty is that it place certainly plays a role in poverty and cycles of poverty. Um, it's not necessarily related to different types of geography, but place clearly, I think, um, plays a role in, um, in the, I guess, really in the existence of poverty and the continuation of poverty. I know you yeah, looked at a little bit of this, Nathan, so you might could say a little bit more, but that's about all I could say uh, uh, that I know about it. Yeah, so I'll just say a couple things. I don't want to spend too much time on this, but it's a really fascinating question, and there's a lot of interesting work being done on this kind of thing. So I'll just I'll just highlight a couple things. So one is that we know that there are big effects from peers in school. So um, it's it's not the same thing to be a low-income student in a school surrounded by a bunch of low-income students as to be a low-income student in a school where you're mostly surrounded by not low-income students. And in general, when you're surrounded by higher-income peers, people tend to do, perform better. Students tend to perform better. So when you're in in this sort of not only poor but poor in a poor neighborhood, um, that that tends to be where we see the worst outcomes. Um, is is when you're surrounded by poverty and not just in poverty yourself. Um, there's racial a racial dimension to this because um, whites tend to be more likely, even if they live in poverty, to live in a neighborhood that isn't impoverished, um, whereas blacks and Latinos are much more likely, if they're living in poverty, poverty to be in a neighborhood where most people are living in poverty. Um, and then one other thing I'll say is that the places are changing some. So it used to be that a lot of poverty was concentrated in inner cities, and now much more of the poverty has been moving out to the suburbs. And the research hasn't necessarily fully caught up with that yet. So a lot of people still have this image, um, and a lot of the research on poverty has been done in the inner city context. And so that's sort of a new avenue that I think people are starting to look at more because a lot of poverty, like I said, has moved out to the suburbs. Yeah, I think those are all important dimensions and interesting enough that maybe we'll have to do some more uh, reading and have an interesting chat about it sometime. Um, so, uh, but we'll, we'll keep moving, talking about the evidence and thinking about um, using statistical approaches to thinking about evidence, given that a lot of the topics we've been talking about in this course use that type of information. So when we took a little break from here to get questions we were sort of at this place where we're talking about descriptive statistics, again, the average, and then how close things are to the average, right? And so let's go from there and talk about how we uh, use things like things we've mentioned, correlations and regressions, um, to then have information about the impact of a policy. Okay. Yeah, so first of all, I'll just sort of explain how about I start explaining uh, what a correlation is, if that's all right. Um, so, and before you do that, uh, sorry, the thing that uh, I was gonna say is we moved a little bit into this realm when talking about differences in averages and a random control 
Uh, the way in which that's really done is uh, using correlation analysis. But the reason we're going to need some of the correlational analysis, too, is to take into account when everything's not equal across the public school and the charter school, for example. So I wanted to I forgot we got all the way there earlier. So I wanted to bring that back in. But but go ahead. Yeah. So correlation refers to whether or not um, two two variables that we've measured with numbers are related to one another. So a positive correlation means that when you have higher values of one number, you have higher values of the other number as well. So an example would be height and weight are correlated. Um, taller people tend to weigh more. Not everyone who's taller weighs more than everyone shorter than them, um, but on average, a taller person is going to weigh more. Um, so that would be an example of a positive correlation. Um, and then a negative correlation would mean that higher numbers of the one value or the one variable are associated with lower values of the other one. So um, an example would be, uh, going back to poverty, um, the percentage of students in poverty at a school is generally negatively related to how well students perform on, the, on, the ex on exams. So when a school has a larger percentage of people living in poverty, test scores tend to be lower. Not always, but in general, they tend to be lower. The average is going to be lower. So positive correlation, all that really means is that on average, people who are uh, taller are also heavier on average than the average. And that would be a positive correlation. That's two things that when relatively, uh, uh, like another one, uh, maybe that's positively correlated, uh, for example, is education and income to some degree. So the yes. more education you have on average, on average, the more income you have, right? Um, whereas negative, that's a positive correlation. Those things kind of go together. And a negative correlation is that as one thing is, is going up, the other thing is going down. And so, uh, for example, your school example, that as school test scores, uh, excuse me, as uh, students in poverty is a higher percentage of the students, those schools do lower on average on standardized tests, for example. Yeah, exactly. Got it. Okay. And so, all right, so we walked through and now kind of put some down for correlation. Now, then what is it a, a regression? Why do, we, why do we need that other than just saying, hey, look, height and weight are positively correlated. Why do we, why do we need a regression and what is a regression? Yeah, so um, let's talk, can we talk a, just a tiny bit about causation and then yeah, as, sure. as a way to motivate thinking about regression? Yeah, that's a so, that's so um, if, if we have two, two variables, X and Y, right, or let's say education and income, okay. if those two are correlated, um, a lot of us have probably heard the phrase before, um, like correlation does not mean causality or doesn't imply causality because we know that sometimes things are correlated even if one doesn't cause the other. Um, so one way to think about correlation is that there are different ways that a correlation could come about. So one could be one explanation of why income is correlated with education could be that higher levels of education cause higher levels of income. Mm -hmm. um, another explanation could be that there's some third factor that causes both of them to be associated with one another. 
So here an example might be um, natural intelligence. Uh, someone who has a high level of intelligence is going to get more education because they enjoy school more, or they stay in school longer or something like that. And someone with high intelligence is also going to earn a larger income on average. So in that case, um, we, one could make the argument that it's not education that causes one to get greater earnings, to, to have a higher income. Instead, it's this third factor, intelligence, that's causing both of those things. So intelligence causes education to go up, higher intelligence also causes income to go up, but a smart person who gets very little education would make just as much money as the smart person who gets a lot of education. That's the, I'm not necessarily saying that's a, a, the way that the world is, but one could make an argument for that. Yeah, sure. that that's why those two variables might be related in that way. And you can also have things that um, influence, or the thing I was thinking about is that it's influencing something else that is influencing income, for example. So you know, to go back to something we were talking about uh, earlier, maybe education, uh, the mechanism by which it helps you get income is new uh, social networks, right? You're around other people who, uh, who uh, make a lot of money. And so you are likely also to make a lot of money just by being part of those social networks. And so that is, that's, uh, those things are still positively related, but the actual causal structure isn't just education leads to more money. It's education through in part being part of these social networks and having access to economic opportunities that you, and informal networks that help you make the larger income. So there's a couple of different things that can be going on even when two things are correlated, right? Yeah. Yeah, and in, in that case, I mean, it, it depends a little bit how we define education, right? Are we defining education as the knowledge that we get through doing the coursework? Or are we defining education as going to college, right? <laughs> and if we define it as going to college, then under the scenario you brought up, going to college still causes the higher income. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. We just might be unsure about why it's causing the higher income or what, what mechanism is, is there. So, um Okay, I think um, then maybe thinking about the utility of when people see regressions in studies, what are they? They're trying to get do a better job of the likelihood that that relationship might be causal. Or they're trying to do some other statistical things to make sure that the correlation between um, education and income is really what's reflected in the correlation. So tell me just yeah. a little bit uh, about that. Yeah, so if, if someone, if you have this great correlation, you say, hey, I got some data, people with higher education are earning more money. Therefore, I've shown that education is causing more income and someone says, wait, 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 hold on. I don't know if that's true. Maybe the people with more education just have higher intelligence. Mm -hmm. um, if, if that's what someone tells me, then I can go and, say, hey, I need to run a regression, and that's gonna let me address this argument or this alternative explanation. So what regression allows you to do is to put in uh, sort of two different causes that you think might be, be there and try to disentangle which one is actually causing um, income or whatever outcome you have in mind. So in this case, um, we would run a regression um, where we have income on one side and then we have two causes that we've identified. 
intelligence, which we would measure with an IQ test, as well as the education level. Um, and we could put in both of those things and figure out um, is the data associated with only one of them if, once we adjust for the other, um, or is it associated with both, or do they affect it in different ways, different directions? Um, so regression is, is a tool. I mean, it, it gets rather complex. It's not easy um, to, to, to learn or describe exactly how all the details of that work, um, but it, it, it allows us a way to see if we have multiple ideas about what the cause might be um, to model them simultaneously and see which one best explains uh, whatever outcome we care about, or what the income level in this case. Yeah, I think I'd, I would add just one thing to that, uh, which uh, what, I think what Nathan is saying there is that regression allows you to have, see how a couple different things are related to one thing of interest and see which one is the stronger or that they're independent effects is the word we would use. So I'm going to, I'm going to stick with the example you used, which is what it, what drives someone's income. And it's very likely, um, uh, I don't know the empirical research myself, but education is positively correlated with income and IQ is likely to be positively correlated with income. We don't know how much of what's driving income, someone's income is their education and how much of it is um, their intelligence, right? And if we can measure those two things, if we can measure education well, and we can measure intelligence well, when you see how uh, how both at the same time, intelligence and education are related to uh, income, it will tell you kind of what their their effects are separated from one another. The other thing that you can do with regression is try to mimic or try to impersonate, not impersonate, but try to mimic um, a, a random uh, a random controlled experiment, right? And so one way that you could do that, you can use regression to test two different things that might influence someone. The other thing you can do is say, okay, we want to know whether or not charter schools or public schools provide better educational outcomes for students, right? And earlier you mentioned that, hey, there might be some different things about the types of students, the types of resources, the types of areas where those schools are found that might influence, let's just go with standardized test scores, because I think that's the easiest way to think about this. And so one thing would be to just test the average score difference uh, for public schools versus charter schools, right? And if they were perfectly have the same types of students and the same types of areas and same types of income and same types of background, then that average difference would tell us what the differences in uh, educational uh, added value between public schools and charter schools by looking at the differences in the averages on those two things on test scores, right? But what a regression can let us do is say, hey, we know those schools aren't the same. They aren't the same. And so what we need to know, what things are they different on? Well, they're different on the average uh, income of the, of the families of the students in that school. So let's put that in our regression, and it will help control for that effect all on its own so that income, the relationship between the background income of the students and the school's average test scores is taken into account. Just like you can take into account different explanations, and the ones that are 
best correlated with while thinking about and keeping in mind all the other correlations is what's most likely the most important variable driving either income or in this example, school test scores. Do you think that's mostly fair how I said that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so um, in the, the charter school example, essentially what we're doing uh, when we run a regression is we're saying, okay, we know not every charter school looks like a public school um, because there's some differences in the students. So if we can measure those differences in the students, then we can adjust for them. And what we're doing is we're saying, after we adjust for these differences in, in poverty levels or whatever it is, the, the, the number of alternative education students, after we adjust for those two, those differences, do the two types of schools still look different exactly. or do they look the same once we've taken into account those other differences? That's what regression lets us do. That's a really nice way of putting it. And I think that's a nice, uh, I think we've kind of hit this one best we can in the time we have. So I, this asks another question, which is the generalizability question, all right? And so I'm going to try to frame this in the context of everything we've talked about so far, but we've kind of laid out some pieces for how empirically-minded public policy researchers, the tools they kind of use to evaluate empirical evidence. And we kind of just gave some basic terminology for some of the basic uh descriptive statistics, but the most important descriptive statistics terms, maybe, and for some broad conceptual understandings of what is a correlation when things are going together, two different variables, and what's a regression, which allows you to kind of independently list a few different things that might affect one thing and see what their effects are. And it may or may not be immediately clear to people following along, but that's exactly how we try to do good public policy research. All right, we have something that we're interested in. Let's call it GDP. Let's call it um, wages, wage growth. Let's call it um, a freedom index. Let's call it what, whatever, like a well-being index. There's something that policy folks are interested in improving, maximizing, making larger, or making something smaller. So uh, one that's been in the news uh, perpetually in the U.S., for example, is, uh, say, deaths from gun violence, right? And so I think this one gets a little interesting not to go down the, the arguments uh, around there, but deaths from gun violence is something we might care about as a society, right? Unnecessarily terminating the lives of citizens by acts of violence, uh, in general, uh, we want to minimize the violence in a society, I think, and minimize the suffering. That's sort of a claim I've made throughout this class as like a basic kind of human thing. And so one thing that might be related with human suffering is violence. And one prominent type of violence in the U.S. is gun violence. Um, and so what we might care about as policy folks is, hey, how do we minimize uh, deaths in America from guns. And how do we do that while taking other factors into account? Things like uh, liberty, things like the legal framework. But if we could come up with a few different choices that fit in with the Constitution and fit in with common law, and we wanted to know how to minimize gun deaths in the U.S., 
how might we have a generalizable enough information to recommend what policymakers should even do, even if we could find policy choices that fit within the constitutional framework and weren't violations of, say, the Second Amendment, you know, of the Second Amendment? Sure. So um, I, th I think one of the ways to, to think about this generalizability question um, is, is trying to figure out Okay, if we get evidence that we believe in one situation, what other situations can we apply it to? So, in the context of the um, the the gun debate, um, we've had pol a policy change in Australia, where Australia at one point decided to make their gun laws stricter, and they actually bought a b bunch of guns from citizens. They said, "We we don't want citizens to have these guns anymore, and so we're going to buy them from you to." So that you you know are compensated for giving up your guns, um, but but we want people to give up their guns. And I don't know a lot of details about this particular um, gun policy. Isn't my area of expertise, but I know this intervention happened. And so people have done empirical studies of this, where they've tried to understand what was the effect of buying up these guns in Australia. Did it lead to a lower number of gun deaths? And the evidence uh, differs a little bit from some studies to others, but I, I think in general. Um, so some studies at least have found that this did lead to a reduction in the amount of gun violence in um, in Australia. There's some questions about um, whether or not, for example, people, I think that the number of gun suicides went down, but suicide by other methods might have gone up. Um, so there, there's a lot of reasons this is difficult to study. Um, but let's just say for the sake of argument that we we are able to conclude pretty definitively with pretty good evidence that gun deaths went down in Australia following the implementation of a gun law. The generalizability issue comes up when we start trying to think about, okay, does that mean that if we implement the same policy in the US that we can expect gun deaths to also go down here? Um, and there are lots of reasons that you might uh, <laughs> you know, make an argument on one side or the other. Uh, not every human society is the same. Um, there's different, there's cultural differences. Uh, there's differences in other types of po policy. Maybe uh, there's greater issues with poverty in one country versus the other. And maybe uh, w when there's a higher level of poverty, gun violence somehow operates differently than in other settings. Maybe there's a larger black market in one country versus the other. And so even if you try to outlaw it, the black market is gonna make it so that bad guys are still able to get guns and maybe that black market wouldn't exist in the other country for cultural reasons or because of other aspects of law enforcement or poverty um, or whatever it might be. Um, those are the reasons, uh, those are the kinds of issues that we have to think about when we're talking about generalizability. It makes me, as you say that, it makes me think of um um, the, all the memes that float around in the social media space now that could be arguably falling under uh, the question of what's a generalizable study and a generalizable principle and what's, uh, what's not. Um, the one that I remember seeing a lot just on gun violence, and then we can, we can move on from that, but um, was about Chicago. Chicago being this place that... Uh, has, you know, according to the meme, right, all these restrictive gun laws and look, hey, there's still there's still violence there. So anyone that says anything about gun control laws because it doesn't 
according to the meme, you know, doesn't work in Chicago where there are gun laws, then we should just abandon all attempts at gun control regulation. And so that that's a good, that's a lot of ways in which um, uh, generalizability is talked about in sort of the social media sphere. And I, I want to talk a little bit maybe about what uh, the article, the generalizability framework that we've talked a little bit uh, about leading up to this conversation and how it might be useful in telling people or giving people guidance on how to evaluate these things. Because often there are these cases that, you know, you see this play out with form of government too, right? Some failing state was a socialist country and that country failed and so socialism is bad. Or, you know, um, look at all the, um, uh, look at all the money generated under uh, capitalism, so capitalism must uh, for America. So capitalism must always be good or bad. Yeah, and we see we, in other places we see lots of policy experimentation at the state level and the local level as well, but especially at the state level in the U.S. Right. So um, we have Romney Care in Massachusetts, right? This healthcare mm-hmm. initiative that was passed in Massachusetts. Um, and if if we're able to confidently say either this had good effects or bad effects then how do we start to think about whether or not it makes sense to pass a policy like that in Colorado or in Texas or um, you know, in Virginia? Do, should we expect the same effects in other states that we found when we adopted this policy in Massachusetts? Okay, so let's talk about generalizability then. How, how can someone that's, that's not an academic think about the way in which, uh, hey, it turns out that this minimum wage study was done in Seattle and it says that uh, raising minimum wage caused job loss in Seattle for low income people, right? And that was in the news recently. I talked about it with friends. And then there are other studies that say, um, no, there's no effect on low income and employment when you raise the minimum wage. There's the, the standard uh classical economic theory that suggests that it should lead to higher unemployment and there's there's different people making different claims and, it's, and the one in Seattle from what I've understood and talked to my economist friends was very well done and and it was in Seattle so how do we what are some tools people can have for thinking about whether they should uh, pay attention to want to, to studies and how they might not if they should pay attention to studies but how they might think about paying attention to studies and evidence yeah so there's there's obviously this is a huge topic, right? <laughs> and 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 this stuff solve is usually all, Nathan. I want you to solve it all in thirty seconds. <laughs> and, and and it's difficult, right? There's I mean there's a lot to wade through. There's a lot of factors to consider. So often it often it is going to be difficult to to tor- sort of sort through this, which is why we often ask experts to try to summarize some of this stuff for us because. Um, trying to to weigh all of the different pieces of evidence uh, is is really difficult. And a lot of times what you see people doing is sort of cherry picking, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they already have some belief or some political ideology, and then they grab all of the evidence that seems to match up with what they already expected, and they present all of that, and they ignore all of the evidence that doesn't match what they wanted or what they expected. And so um, doing a good job assessing all of this stuff is difficult. Um, but it, it's what, uh, you know, a lot of 
what what acad a lot of academics are trying to do is figure out ways to to honestly do that. Um, so one one guideline, especially when we're talking about this generalizability factor, um, that I think is really intuitive and and is useful, is that we would trust evidence from a similar situation more than we would trust evidence from a very dissimilar situation. So going back to that gun control analogy, right, or that gun control setting that we're, we're thinking about, if we're trying to craft policy for the U.S., and I told you that there was a study in Australia where they tried a policy and it was successful, and then they tried that same policy in Zimbabwe and it was unsuccessful, we have two studies, which one do you think you would trust more? What about you, you, Justin? What, which of those two studies do you think would, would offer better guidance for U.S. policymaking? Um, so my guess would be Australia because of shared kind of cultural background and shared So, and, and by the way, just full disclosure, I'm making up the Zimbabwe study. I'm just, this is a hypothetical okay. example. <laughs> I don't know of any study in, in Zimbabwe. But yes, that's, that's my intuition too. And I think that that's, that's what most of us would naturally say, right? That, um, you know, that, that in, in on several dimensions, Australia is more similar to us than than Zimbabwe in terms of the way that the government is structured, um, you know, in terms of some common heritage of being, um, you know, colonialized by the British, which has a lot of effect on the way that governments have tended to get set up. Um, I guess actually, I'm I don't know much about Zimbabwe. I'm not sure whether or not they were ever colonized by the British. Um, in terms of socioeconomic status sort of in how developed they are as a country we would expect there to be more similarities they're english speaking i don't know that that actually affects things at all but that probably makes us naturally think of them as being more similar to us um so um that that's one one piece to think about now the difficulty is i gave you an example that i thought was where it was pretty obvious to try to think about which which setting was more similar um but in a lot of cases you might have um, it, it's hard to define what sim more similar is. So let's let's think about education again. If I'm trying to set education policy for um, Denver, Colorado, that's my hometown. If I'm trying to set a uh, policy for Denver, Colorado, and let's say I have a piece of evidence from Colorado Springs, Colorado, and I have a piece of evidence from Seattle, Washington. Now, I could make the argument that Denver is more similar to Seattle because they're both big cities. Um, and so they're more similar in terms of size. Or I could make a case that Denver is more similar to Colorado Springs because they're both in the same state. Um, and so maybe they have more in common in terms of culture um, and what the state policies are. Right. Um, so that's. A lot of times we live in this world of gray, right? Where we have to either make an argument that that, that Seattle's more similar or that, that Colorado Springs is more similar. Yeah. Um, and the way that we define what's similar is gonna affect which evidence we trust more. And it might, that, that goes back to thinking about why we expect this stuff to matter, right? Mm -hmm. if, if we think that the, the key sort of contextual factors um, are have to do with sort of um, the urbanness of a school district, right? If we believe firmly that urban education is very different than trying to run schools in non-urban areas, 
then we would probably go to that study from Seattle and that's the one that we trust more. But if we think state culture is really important to the way that students learn and the way that schools operate, then we would probably trust the study from Colorado Springs more. So some of it comes back to what we know or what we think we know, the theory that we have, what we believe about the specific setting that we're examining. Yeah, that's, uh, that's a really uh, useful throwback, I think, to earlier in the conversation where we were talking about ha having a good understanding before going out and grabbing lots of empirical data. goes back to some of the things we were saying earlier. You need to have a good understanding of what mechanism, to the best you can, what mechanisms do you expect to be at play there? And so is it proximity and location? Like, is it distance from? Is it state? culture? Is it size? Is it, you know, the, the labor pool in that city? And what we would use to figure out what we mean similarly um, would be the theory, the, the understanding, the mechanisms that are at play. That's, yeah, that's really good. I think that's a really good uh, reminder. So the, the similarity piece is one from the generalizability framework. What, what other rules of thumb or what other things would, would be helpful for people to know. Yeah, well, I guess I, I would say there's there's sort of two that are wrapped into what I described. So one is the similarity piece, and the other piece is trying to have some idea of what the causes might be, right? Yeah. Which is what we just talked about as well. That having some concept of, of, of what causal mechanisms might lead the policy to be successful or unsuccessful, I think that's a really important piece as well. Those are the, the two that I think I would, I would emphasize. And so, all right, so that covers um, some of the things on generalizability. Are there, um, are there other things about thinking about how one study might fit into how we give advice to policymakers that you yeah. know are relevant? Yeah, so I, I guess, um, th yeah, there's, there's a lot of aspects to this. So not all studies are equal in terms of quality, right? Mm -hmm. um, so the, the discussion we just had about generalizability sort of assumes that all, quali all studies are of equal quality. But in reality, we're more likely to s face a situation where, first of all, we don't just have two studies. We might have 10, 20, or hundreds, depending on the, the policy setting, right? But um, we might have a, a, you know, you mentioned minimum wage. <laughs> we might have a study from, from Washington that we think is really high quality and we really trust. And then we might have a, a study from our own state that's a little bit lower quality, but maybe we think it's a more similar setting. Um, so, so we're having to, to trade off these, these various things. Um, but the other thing that I, that I think is, is really important is to recognize that um, the, all of this hints at the idea that no one study constitutes definitive proof, right? Every study is imperfect. Uh, every, we, we have to make policy in an uncertain world. And we shouldn't pretend that we, that we know with 100% certainty what, um, what the effects of adopting a policy will be. And so um, I think the way that sometimes some of these topics get covered in media, they sort of act like, oh, one study, there's this new study out that proves such and such that proves that pay for performance works in education or proves that gun control doesn't work in, in the United States or whatever. And really most evidence doesn't a hundred percent prove or disprove anything. It just, it's something else to add to the scales. And so um, one way to think about this 
is that in different policy areas and on different topics, there's going to be a continuum of how much certainty we have about something, right? And on one end of the continuum might be, we're really confident that this policy is gonna have some negative effects that we don't want. On the other continuum is, we're really sure this, pretty sure that this policy is gonna have some positive effects that we think are gonna be helpful. Then there's a whole continuum in between. And that's what I think we should be asking our experts to help tell us. You know, is there a consensus? Do all the experts in this policy area agree that this is a really good intervention? Or is there a lot of disagreement where some experts say yes, some say no, because the evidence is a little more unclear and, and we're not quite sure. We're still trying to fit all of that evidence together. Different people have different ideas about how to fit it together um, versus an area where it's, it's much more decided. Um, and I think too often <laughs> when we go to the experts on cable news or whatever, we instead of asking them that question, how much uncertainty is there in this policy area? We expect them to have, you know, a bulletproof answer and be able to tell us exactly what the effects are going to be. Um, and I, I just don't think that's that's fair to the experts or to the evidence that exists in a lot of cases. So I want to go in a little different direction here for just a moment. Um, and one of the things that I want people to be aware of when thinking about evidence um, and how they weigh evidence is applying similar standards of evidence or uh, quality of evidence or similar standards of certainty across different domains of information. And so one of the things we've been talking about is running the is running regression models and using statistics to tell us how things are related. One of the things we haven't really mentioned is that in regression, uh, we make a few other assumptions so that we can have uh, guesses about the probability that that estimate is right. And so, for example, in our field, you, you like you want to know if something in general is 95%, uh, is, is the 95% likely to reject the null hypothesis, um, which isn't quite strictly speaking. And any stats people give me a break on this that uh, they hear this, but essentially it means that you're 95% confident uh, that, that it's different from zero and that that is your estimate of an uh, impact of, of, um, of something. And so even with uh, consensus in um, different fields about different phenomenon, it's important to recognize that all of this, at least in the social sciences, is probabilistic which means that we know things with some level of certainty and we know with some level of certainty across a lot of different, um, a lot of different studies, but it's always with some certainty. The thing that I've seen with this play out before is, uh, is talking with people about climate change policy. Um, sorry, my nose is itching me tonight. Um, um, is the climate change debate. So I've had these conversations with friends uh, about evidence in particular as it uh, pertains to climate change. And the, and the claim always is that, well, we're not 100% certain that humans are the main driver in climate change, for example. Um, yes, there's a lot of consensus, but there's not a 100% consensus. And until there's a 100% consensus, we should do nothing. Um, and so in the light of generalizability and thinking about seeing consensus among experts, 
um, how might you think about evidence from different um, like, explain to me why saying that, uh, that scientists don't know 100% for sure that that's the cause isn't a really good response to hey there's a bunch of evidence that is agreed upon by a field of people can you talk a little bit about why both those things are, are true I mean it is true that people aren't 100% about really any social phenomenon. I mean, it's not completely true, but certainly not uh, climate change. Um, and But the experts have come to a consensus as a large group saying, we are very, very certain this is what's going on. So what's, what's going on there in kind of the public conversations when both those things are presented to people? Sure. So again, climate change is not a specific area of expertise of mine, but um, I, you know, I, I read about it, um, like other things, and, and I understand a little bit about how um, science works, which helps me to understand some of what I read about it. Um, so I, I think I can say a couple of things. So first of all, um, there are a couple of ways that scientists are trying to work to be able to provide some of what of an indication to the public of how much certainty we do have about that topic. Um, and there are two specific ways that I know that, that people are trying to do that. So one of them is uh, I know there, there's a study that uh, has gone through, I don't know exactly how many, I think over a thousand studies that have been published on um, sort of climate change and global warming topics, and then looked at the article and tried to figure out what percentage of them seem to conclude that that um, global warming is happening or is, is caused by humans or something like that um, versus studies that cast some doubt on that. Um, and then they can give us, report us a percentage of what, what these studies seem to be indicating to give us some quantitative way instead of just saying there's some scientists who agree, there's some that disagree. We think most of them are on the same page and agree, but and that the ones who disagree are in a very small minority. They try to actually quantify that. Um, and, and one of the numbers that I think I've seen thrown around is that about 96% versus 4%, um, the 96% agree that the global warming is a problem. So that's, that's one way to try to communicate to the public. No, we don't have, not every climate scientist agrees, but it's, it's the overwhelming majority that, that agree about this. There's also been some instances of polling social scientists or doing surveys, that kind of thing, to try to quantify this, um, this type of stuff. A second way, though, is um, I believe the, uh, I forget the exact name of it, but there's an international climate change report that comes out um, regularly that, that scientists every few years or something like that, they issue a report. Um, and it's done by experts in the field. Um, I don't know the exact process, but one of the things that they do, I think, often is they sort of give um, like a, a good scenario, a middle of the range scenario, and then a really bad scenario for what they think is possible because they don't know exactly what 2050 is gonna look like or 2030 or whatever year they're, they're trying to model. They don't know exactly how warm it's gonna be, how much the sea levels are gonna rise and all of that kind of stuff. So instead, they, instead of pretending that they have one estimate that they know is the truth, they say, hey, look, um, here's the range of what we think is possible. Here's what we think is the most likely, sort of the middle of the range estimate, but it could easily be as you know, favorable as this or as unfavorable as that. Um, and so they kind of, they describe different possible scenarios. So I think that's, that's one way that scientists have tried to be able to communicate um, to the policy community, to the public and, and to other scientists, um, 
some of the uncertainty on this topic. Um, does that help to answer your question? Yeah, and I think the, so I know the National Academy of Sciences do reports like that of National Academy of Sciences of Engineers, National Academy of Sciences of uh, Medicine. Um, I know, some of the conversations I've had with David Bradford about medical cannabis, for example, the, one of the main references is the National Academies of Science. There is a international report that I'm not going to be able to recall off the top of my head either that we discussed in the podcast with Kent Portney. Um, and so listeners can kind of reference it from that podcast, uh, but I'm not going to be able to recall. There are these major reports that large groups of scientists, uh, you know, the, the, the professions have been pulling together to put out to let people know what the current state of research is on a topic. Yeah, yeah. And let me, there's one more thing I wanted to say that I forgot about, if I can yeah, jump in yeah. real quick. Um, so the, the other thing, though, is I think, you know, I, I talked about how we try to quantify some of this uncertainty, right, or how scientists have tried to communicate some of this uncertainty to the public. But the other piece of it is what do you do with that, right? Yeah. <laughs> Let's say that we have some idea that, okay, it seems like most scientists believe that, that human-made climate change is happening and is going to cause a lot of negative effects in the future. We're not 100% certain, but most most scientists seem to who study this seem to think so. What do we do when we start thinking about policy? So one of the ways that I think about it is, is trying to think about different possible scenarios and then weighing the, the costs of action versus inaction under those possible scenarios. So one way I think about climate change is I'm just going to throw out some numbers, right? I don't know if these these make are, are accurate ways to view the world or not. But let's say there's an 80% chance, just going to keep it really simple and have two buckets. We're not going to have like a best case, middle case, worst case, just two buckets, right? Either climate change, human caused climate change is happening or it's not. So let's say there's, a, there's an 80% chance that climate change is happening and it's going to be destructive and there's a 20% chance that it's not. And then I think about, well, what are the impacts if the climate change is actually going to ha be happening versus what are the costs to us as an economy if we start trying to switch to non-fossil fuels um, if, if we never needed to, if climate change isn't happening in the first place. And so from my perspective, um, thinking about this a little bit and reading some of the experts, it seems to me that if climate change is in fact happening, the costs are going to be really, really high. You know cities on the coastlines, which a lot of our big cities are on the coastlines, being completely covered in water, which means you know, tons of people being displaced, tons of rebuilding having to happen, huge negative effects on our economy, versus um, if, it, if it doesn't happen, or the, sorry, versus the cost of implementing these policies, right? We're gonna take somewhat of a hit to our national, our economic growth probably, um, by moving away from fossil fuels, because fossil fuels in a lot of cases are still the cheapest way to produce things. So if we move to other more expensive ways of producing things, we're probably gonna be less wealthy as a nation. Um, but it, I, I don't think it's gonna be a devastating loss to our economy the way that um, climate change would be. So to me, it makes sense. Yeah, we, we take a little bit of a hit to our economy. My income might not grow as much as it otherwise would. Um, we might have some more issues with poverty, although I'd hope we can improve our, our policies to help people with poverty our, poverty, our welfare system and that sort of thing. So yes, I'm, I'm willing to take a little bit lower economic growth in order to avoid this risk that we have this really catastrophic effect, even if we're not 100% certain 
that that catastrophic effect is happening. So that's the way I think about it is, yes, I'm giving up some economic growth in order to avoid the possibility of this. It's like buying an insurance policy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, and I think um, you did a really nice job there of laying out something that I tried to do in week one of this course, which was get people to think about trade-offs of different states of uh, p policies and what are the what is the best evidence that suggests what the outcome is going to be about changing those and what are our values right and so part of this you highlight i think um is how to do these things at the you know uh most efficient cost i think cost was one um that you mentioned and um looks like i have lost nathan um so i'll give him just a second to come back there you are, sir. Lost you for just a moment. Welcome back. Thanks. It was, it was much less fun talking to myself. Can you hear me? Yep. Okay, okay. Um, and um, so uh, I think it's useful to think about, hey, where are we now? And then do exactly what you said, which is inaction is one choice. And inaction has these likely outcomes, right? And action... Uh, has these likely outcomes associated with it? Which state do we want more as a society and at what cost? And that's why I find a lot of the conversations around so a lot of these topics frustrating, which don't mean to go down that bad. But the whole point of what we're trying to do here is say, look, they, there is evidence. We do know a lot about a lot of these topics. And so let's approach them in nuanced ways. Like what is the difference in outcomes between uh, acting on uh, – reducing carbon emission versus not. You know, Kemp Portney would make an argument with you, I think, based on our discussion, that those things aren't really trade-offs in the way people think, that you can pursue um, policies that limit carbon emission and grow at least cities' economies. Um, and so, uh, not that the individual pieces matter, but, you know, what is the consensus? Finding out what the consensus is, and then thinking about, okay, with these probabilities, like you'd put really nicely, I think, which was, hey, if we're 80%, but let's go with the number from the study, you know, that 95% of peer-reviewed or 96% of peer-reviewed say uh, human-made, human uh, interaction is what's driving climate change, right? If we're 96% sure that it's happening and the estimated costs with that are, you know, hundreds of millions of lives and, you know, uh, tens of billions of dollars or trillions of dollars um, and the cost of implementing those policies are, you know, whatever um, it, uh, you know, say they're, they cause a slightly smaller economic growth over time, right? We have to weigh what we value, right? And do we uh, not just what is going to do the most to our economy, but also the different states of outcomes for the people in the society or for the people that, you know, what makes climate change hard is, it's an externality, right? It's caused by externalities and externalities being things where when two people engage in a transaction, some ex extra cost is happens as a result of that that they don't have to take into account in their transaction. And so climate change is one that has that problem not only across individuals but across countries, right? I mean, there's just such a uh, – there's some issues there from a market standpoint. But, but anyways, I, I think it highlights – I think you're talking about how different states are associated with 
the best evidence and the most likely outcomes. And we assign weights to those things based on the things we value. And then, then we have a good informed decision about how to use the evidence that we've been talking about and use your societal ethics or structure for evaluating different choices and make it right and use the different types of best available evidence to guide the next states or your decisions. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think we have, uh, it looks like one more question down here. We're hitting the hour mark. So I want to take this last question because I think we have an answer to it and then give you a chance to say anything else about the importance of evidence or how we think about evidence to uh, to viewers. But before we get there, uh, Kim Chow Kim has another question, um, which is, what should we can what should we consider most importantly when we cannot be sure generalizable comparative tools um, and causation in researching public affairs and policy? If we do only segregated analysis, I think we cannot but only uh, make somehow restricted research. So the way I uh, read this comment, Kung Chow, is what do we rely on if we don't have good generalizable uh, research and if it's just kind of one off? in local contexts that don't make a lot of sense. And so my first response would that to be, would be to, if there's any research at all on it, you start with that if it's well done and then note how that context is different than the one you're looking at. Note how uh, the issues with that study. But I think the real answer here is making sure you really, really understand the mechanisms. If you don't have good empirical evidence to guide you, on how a specific the response to a specific policy, you certainly need to do your best to understand the underlying mechanisms of human behavior and do your best uh, effort to understand those in lack of having any good quality generalizable research. Do you have something else to say to that, Nathan? Yeah, I think I would say, I mean, my point in bringing up generalizability was not at all to say that you shouldn't be looking at the evidence, but you should only look at evidence from my own location um, or anything like that. Um, my, rather, I was trying to highlight how, how we weigh evidence from lots of different places, because often we do have evidence from, from lots of different places. And um, I think it's good to, to try to look at as much of the evidence as we can, but bear in mind that um, different policies, policies might have different effects in different places. And so we need to be aware of that. But, and it's not just different places, it can have different effects over time, right? What worked in 1990 might not work in 2010. We don't know. Um, and, but we, we, can, we can try to think about, is the, is the environment similar? Would we expect to get a similar result now? So I would say, first of all, try to find whatever evidence you can, if there's something similar, even if it's not exactly the same. Um, but something else I would say is, um, Try to, um, if it is a policy where there isn't a lot of, of evidence to go off of, try piloting it first if you can. Start small um, to try to prove whether or not the concept can work and then you can build up from there, right? And that's something that some governments have done, some aren't, aren't, aren't great at, at doing, um, but I think is really helpful to the process of trying to design a good program. Um, and we have some good models of that. I think. Um, when uh, Social Security was, or was it Social Security? I, I can't remember the exact case study. There's a case study that I use in, in, in research, in teaching. I can't remember if it's Social Security Administration or IRS, but um, they, were, they were 
changing a lot about the organization and the way that the organization was going to operate. And one of the things that they did before rolling it out to this entire federal agency is they started small. They, they took a couple of units and they tried the new system with a couple of units. And by trying it with just a couple of units, they were able to figure out what are the problems under the new system, what works under well under the new system. And they could get buy-in from other people. They could say, hey, we've tried it out here and it works pretty well. And they had a really successful rollout to the broader organization after starting small and trying it in that context. We can do the same thing in international development and in, in other policy areas where we, we try something on a small scale um, and that helps to reduce the risks if it doesn't work out so well. Yeah. We just say, hey, it didn't work here. We're not going to roll it out to the whole country um, or the whole state or whatever it is. Um, so that's that's another way that we can help to to handle some of the, the uncertainty. Yeah, I like the, uh, the idea of experimentation and experimenting on smaller, um, experimenting with smaller subgroups uh, or smaller local groups um, that uh, um, allows to have lower startup costs to see what the impact of some program is. I mean, rolling it out for a hundred people in a city versus 10 million gives you at least some initial evidence and then you can scale up from there. So I like that as real kind of practical advice to, to policymakers when thinking when thinking about evidence. Um, anything else that you'd like to add before we wind down on uh, this discussion of evidence? I, I would say, I'll give you a minute to think. I would say that um, I think this is really important. Some of this I think tonight is kind of dry, but um, one of my frustrations with the current political discussions and the, what prompted me to do the Public Problems podcast, to do the Public Problems classroom, is I think people are having a hard time accessing the evidence and information they need to make good decisions. And I think there are a lot of policy actors who are straight up just ignoring all of the good empirical evidence that we have on a wide array of issues. This is something I've come more attuned to in teaching my uh, uh, foundations course at the Bush School, which is there's really good empirical evidence about a lot of phenomenon if we would just use it and then think about the trade-offs from an ethical standpoint. And so this isn't by no means comprehensive tonight, but I think the way in which we can get people to talk about evidence and different types of evidence and how to use good science to give us the best, uh, out, uh, the best guesses at how policy works um, is something that's really important and also that's something that's really missing from the public dialogue um, certainly from oftentimes discussions by political actors, but even in sort of mainstream uh, news outlets, often particularly in video ones, these like thorough discussions about evidence of stuff is really what we need and, and is what's missing. So I appreciate you coming on tonight and talking with the audience about the importance of evidence and how we think about in particular empirical evidence since so many our policy issues uh, use large empirical data to think about how to solve them. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I think the, the the last thing I'll say is um, I just direct people to a few resources, practical resources that they might be able to use when they're trying to find some of this stuff. So I think um, a lot of us have gotten to the point where we're, we're skeptical of a lot of things, right? We've, we know that there's 
um, untrustworthy news sites floating around that even the mainstream media sometimes makes mistakes on some of these kinds of things. Um, I've gotten pretty skeptical of the way that a lot of science gets covered in the media because I don't think it always is covered well. I think the, the big established outlets tend to be a little bit more careful than some of the, the smaller, newer outlets. Um, but there's there's a lot of reports that I've seen written up in media that, that don't necessarily summarize the evidence well. So I'm gonna just mention a few tools that I think can be helpful um, if you are trying to, to, to find some of this stuff and figure out, you know, how can I try to understand where some of the evidence is at. So two things that get referenced a lot are meta-analyses and systematic reviews. Um, and those are terms that are used to refer to usually academic publications that try to summarize the evidence in an area, in a field. Um, that's again, a meta-analysis or a systematic review. So if I'm gonna go into an area where I don't know much about what the science is, whether it be in policy or in nutrition or whatever it is, um, a lot of times I'll start by kind of trying to search for something like a meta-analysis or a systematic review. Um, because that means that there's an author who's gone through and tried to look at the existing studies and summarize what, what has been found. Um, and a lot of times that's gonna give me a much more unbiased perspective than you know going to a, a think tank that's a conservative or liberal think tank, right? That has a pretty clear agenda or something like that, even though those can be useful sources as well sometimes. Um, another- About the meta-analysis uh, and yeah. systematic review. The other thing I would uh, just add is uh, in case people don't have access to or aren't familiar with library search engines or those types of things. I just wanted to let people know you can Google has a nice tool called Google Scholar. And if you put in meta analysis of poverty, meta analysis of crime, those types of things, it will give you studies and a lot of them will be behind a paywall, but almost all of them you can read the abstract and the abstract usually gives you the basic takeaway from the meta analysis for some primary kind of variable that you might be interested in. So Google Scholar is free, anyone can use it, and you can access millions and millions of abstracts that often do a good job of laying out the, the findings from the study. So, but, but continue, I just wanted to lay that out there. No, that's a really good point, and I'm, I'm glad you interrupted actually, because that, that reminds me to say even, a lot of times you wouldn't want to read more than the abstract anyway, <laughs> because often it'll get extremely technical as yeah. you get into the details, and I might not even understand it depending on the, on the policy area. And so um, it's looking, just at, at sort of what's said in the introduction, the conclusion of the abstract is usually what I'm going to do if I want to look up a, a meta-analysis or a systematic review in an area that I don't I don't know very well. Um, one other resource that I think is kind of creative and interesting is um, the Chicago University of Chicago. I think it is. They, they've is it the University of Chicago? They've created something called the IGM Forum. Um, I guess it's it's part of. Uh, Chicago Booth is what it says. I'm not sure if this is, I guess that's probably different than the University of Chicago. But anyways, the IGM Forum, um, and what they do is they regularly interview um, a set of economists about different topics. And then they'll publish what the responses of those economists are and give you a nice visual that shows you what percentage of them agree or disagree. Um, so you can sort of see for yourself do all, are all the economists on the same page about the effects of minimum wages? Or is there some disagreement there? Is it 20% 
to 80% disagreement or is it like 50-50 where everyone's just kind of in the in the dark about it? Um, so anyways, I think that's a site that I've enjoyed looking through and seeing what sorts of different questions they're talking about. Um, and I, it, it's a fascinating place to go and, and look for evidence that I think can be pretty helpful. Um, and and it's, it's, it's obviously there's limitations to just doing a poll of experts, but I think they do it about as well as you can if you want to want to do that kind of thing. Well, could you send me, uh, if you think about it, the, a link for that? I'll post it along with the video and I'll post a, a link to Google Scholar as well. And if we, if you are able to come across any of the reports that we were mentioning, just uh, fairly easy or have them on hand, if you want to send them over to me, I'll uh, publish them with the video. Um, I think we'll go ahead and, and wrap up then. This has been um, a lot of fun, bud. I hope that we can do it again soon. Nathan was the final guest in the season one of the Public Problems podcast. I mentioned then I actually got the idea of the podcast from uh, some conversations with Nathan. So many thanks to you, sir, for putting that idea and um, making me think it was something that uh, could be fun to do. And I really appreciated you coming on as a guest, coming on to my first, uh, the first not the first live situation like this. We did that with Greg last week, but we have our cool banners now and our logo and starting to feel uh, very official. Um, a few parting things that I will say, um, class, regular class will be still on Wednesday. It's going to be at nine o'clock Eastern, eight o'clock Central. Uh, professors Ann Bowman and Rob Greer will be my guests. We'll be talking about cities and sustainability and the problems that face uh, cities and local governments, both from um, things like smart cities to uh, financial concerns. So I think that'll be fun. I hope you can join us in two days for that. Thanks for doing the pop-up kind of uh, in the middle of in-between weeks with me on this, Nathan. And uh, I'm looking forward to when we can do it again. We'll have to pick yet another topic after uh, education funding and evidence. That could be a lot of fun for us because I, I really enjoyed this tonight. So thanks again for that, sir. Great. I, it's a lot of fun. Thanks for letting me join. Awesome. Uh, everyone have a nice night, and thanks for tuning in. See you on Wednesday night at 9 p.m. Eastern right here on the Public Problems Podcast uh, Facebook page. Thanks.